Well, let's open our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Let's give attention now to God's holy Word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, seeking God's help this evening, let's focus our attention upon verses 13 and 14 of the passage that we just read from Romans chapter 3. Here as Paul is expounding the biblical doctrine of human sinfulness, of fallen humanity, He deals with our sins of speech. Verse 13, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You'll notice here he refers to our speech in four different ways. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. This is a comprehensive perspective on our words. Every aspect is sinful. Every aspect is corrupted in some way. And even as believers, we find that our sinful flesh oftentimes finds a way to corrupt in in all the various aspects of our speech. uh, We find ourselves falling into these very sins, if not sinful patterns at times, either... Filthy words, as we saw this morning, Uh, our throat is an open tomb. Deceitful words, even believers, we can fall into that. Deceitful words, their tongues, with their tongues, they practice deceit. Venomous words, the poison of asps, these poisonous snakes, uh, that venom is under their lips. And also, profane and bitter words, our mouth can be full of cursing. And bitterness. And so we're going to be exploring these various categories of sins for the purpose of reminding us why we need Christ, why we need 
the shedding of His blood at the cross because we're guilty, because we need a sacrifice for our sins, why we need His perfect obedience unto death on that cross, which was affirmed and confirmed at the resurrection when God found that perfect obedience acceptable. Why do we need it? Because we have not spoken in a way that delights God. We've spoken in an unrighteous, ungodly way, and God's law requires perfection. And if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. We can't keep them ourselves. We haven't kept them. Christ has kept them on our behalf. And so there's a constant reminder why we need the finished work of Christ, why we need the ongoing intercession of Christ to intercede for us, to apply that forgiveness and that salvation to us every moment of every day, even as He reigns in glory. And it's also a reminder to us of the importance of Christian sanctification, that we ought to follow in His steps. We ought to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no deceit in His mouth, uh, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, no filthy words, no deceptive words, venomous words, profane words, bitter words. None of those things characterized Him. And so it's a call for us, by the grace of God, to be more and more like Jesus Christ in our words. So that's the, the big picture here. This morning we were able to focus our attention upon filthy words. Their throat is an open tomb. Now before we proceed to consider deceptive or flattering words, I do want to say something about this open tomb. Notice, and I think this applies to all of the different phrases and clauses in our passage, I think hopefully we can circle back around it at the end of the sermon in terms of application with this. But notice it is an open tomb. The default for those that are practicing ungodly speech is that their mouth is open. That's the default. Some of us know what that's like. I talk a lot and, and uh, this is a besetting temptation and sin that I need to work on. But you see the point here. It's an open tomb. And throughout the Scriptures, the key to overcoming sins of speech is not that we remain utterly silent altogether, but that our default is not to open our mouths, especially without thinking. We don't want to withhold God's righteousness and fail to speak. We see that in the Psalms. But our default should not be an open mouth. Proverbs 13, verse 3, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. So, we said that it's the wicked, filthy heart that's emanating those fumes that come out through the open mouth. Now, as believers, we've had that heart replaced. We have a good heart. It's the wellspring of spiritual life. Our heart was our biggest enemy when we were non-Christians. Our heart, as John Flavel famously says in his treatise on the subject, is, is our greatest ally. Our heart has been redeemed. The problem is there's still remaining sin in it. And so we always need to make sure that what's coming up through the passageway is from our redeemed new humanity in Christ, from our sanctified heart of faith, and not the remaining sin that plagues our heart. And so we just have to be careful and filter things out. And that takes 
time. So we don't want to just have an open mouth and whatever comes up or comes out, comes out. We need to guard our mouth so that we can preserve our life. This is a theme throughout the Psalms. You may wonder why we had multiple pre-service Psalms. That was partly to give people time to get here, but also because I was struggling. There were just so many Psalms that deal with this subject. And there are some we haven't sung, but there were just many, many different options in terms of Psalm selections that are quoted in our text by Paul and that are relevant. So I just thought it would be helpful for us to have these things on our lips, be thinking about them. And, and, and there's just so much in the psalm book about this topic. Psalm 39, verse 1, I said I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. Psalm 73, verse 15, Asaph, struggling with God's providence, the apparent prosperity of the wicked, and he's becoming embittered to some extent, tempted in that direction. Psalm 73, verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, in other words, if I allow those fleshly thoughts, those carnal interpretations of God's providence in my life, to come up and come out of my mouth, out of, that, out of my heart as a, as a reflection of my fleshliness, my remaining sin. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. But instead, it says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. So instead of speaking His bitter words, He kept them in, he thought about them, he brought them before the Lord, went to church, and things started to make sense. And he was able to write this psalm to instruct us. And so putting words on our lips that are helpful rather than expressing bitter words, cynical words about the providence of God. So he guarded, he filtered out certain things in his speech. Psalm 141 and verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Essentially saying, lead me not into temptation. And so we have a duty to muzzle ourselves, but we need to ask God's blessing to help us moment by moment that we are filtering, that we're not just blurting out the first thing that comes to mind with the tone of voice that comes to mind in terms of how to respond in various Situations. This is a New Testament teaching as well. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That means that we have the ability to keep things that are in our hearts from coming out of our mouths. So, we want to address the issue in our heart. Asaph did that and it took some time. But in the meantime, let's not spew it out of our mouths. Let's just hold it in, think about it, pray about it, and try to get some clarity from the Word of God. But let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Edification means building an edifice. So if there's an architect coming up with a blueprint, they're going to spend a lot of time preparing and thinking about how they're going to construct a bridge or a building or whatever they're planning to build, 
they're going to be thinking in advance, planning in advance. Now, we don't have that kind of time in terms of everyday conversation, but the principle is there that just like an architect planning what they're going to build, we should be thinking about what is good for necessary edification. He says that it may impart grace to the hearer. So something of forethought and strategy about what we're saying, how we're saying it, not just knee-jerk reactions, which of course is our fleshly default, to just to have the mouth open and, and to spew out whatever comes to mind. The opening portion of chapter 5 says some of those same types of things. One other book that I want us to look at here is uh, James. James 1 verse 26. Powerful statement. This is a convicting statement. This is a humbling statement. But it's a statement from God's Word. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. That's a, that's a very powerful statement from James under inspiration. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In other words, if somebody's engaging in a sinful pattern of speech and they are confronted or they have an inkling that they're sinning, their conscience kicks in, and they just ignore it and you know, continue barreling through the stop sign or through the red light and they just deceive themselves. And maybe they think, well, I'm religious in this area of my life, that area of my life, and so it's okay that I speak in this way, that I have this pattern of sinful speech, that I that I'm not bridling my tongue, that I'm not muzzling my mouth, and, and that I'm not repenting of this sin and taking steps to deal with it and overcome it by God's grace. No, they just ignore it, blow through the stop sign. They're deceiving themselves. Their religion is pointless, useless, meaningless. That's a strong statement, but it's one we need to hear. And then the last thing I'll say along these lines in terms of the, the open tomb, the open mouth, is in terms of church office, especially uh, teaching in the church, James 3.1. So he talks about in terms of, let's, let's say, church membership or you know, a credible profession of faith. We have to be someone who bridles his or her tongue. That's what we just looked at. But there's a unique responsibility for those that are speaking on behalf of the church, right? Those that are governing the church, those that are engaging in discipline and teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. He says, my brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, this is talking about the evaluation of our fruit at the last day. We'll receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Better translation there would be a mature man. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, I want you to notice that chapter 1, verse 26 actually says that Every true Christian, to some extent, will bridle his or her tongue. Otherwise, 
they're not true Christians. Their religion is useless. There's going to be a bridling of the tongue. So in chapter 3, when it goes on to speak of taming the tongue and the impossibility of taming the tongue, he's talking about without the Holy Spirit. He's saying if you're not a Christian. But with the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 26, every Christian is able to make progress in this area, bridling the tongue. And with the Holy Spirit, those who are in church office ought to reflect a a unique level of maturity in this area. And again, this is why it's so humbling for myself. This is why I need to hear this. This is why this is a text that is so powerful to convict and to instruct. But, But that's the importance here of just not going on autopilot with our speech. Not going on autopilot but seeking to tame and bridle and harness the power of the tongue, not just to avoid sin, but to use it for many important things like teaching and and instructing. Now, Paul says that in addition to this open tomb of filthy speech, there's also these deceptive words, or he's quoting Psalm 5 verse 9. You, You could render that in the Hebrew words of flattery. With their tongues they have practiced flattery, or with their tongues they have practiced deceit. So, deceitful words, deceptive words. Now, our world is characterized by this increasingly as the light of the gospel is dimming in our day, as the saltiness of the church as a preservative is reducing and and becoming more diluted, sad to say. And as we see the world just being given over to greater and greater ungodliness, the Bible emphasizes we should expect to see deceptive words on a, on a large scale. Romans one thirty one speaks of God giving people over to unrighteousness and these twin sins that are mentioned, undiscerning and untrustworthy. So people are less and less discerning, so they're gullible, so they're easily deceived. And then there's also an increase in the number of people trying to deceive others. Untrustworthy. So people are undiscerning, untrustworthy. 2 Timothy 3.13, imposters going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So you see again, those two things go together. Deceiving and being deceived. Now, I don't know how long ago it was, but certainly over a year ago, a couple years, something like that, I preached a sermon on vain credulity, the idea that we should not be gullible. Proverbs 14, verse 15, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. So we have to be very careful, whether it be in the society in which we live, where there's just more and more untrustworthiness, people trying to trick us, people trying to deceive us at all levels of even some of the most otherwise, you know, historically speaking, institutions that we would have trusted in the past. You just can't trust them to the same extent. It's hard to know who you can trust. And we want to avoid being suspicious people that can't glean information and take counsel from experts and so on and so forth. But we need discernment in an age like this, recognizing total depravity and its impact on human untrustworthiness, these deceptive words that Paul says characterize the world around us. We need to be reminded of how to smell that rat in the woodpile, how to 
how to recognize something that is untrustworthy. And so I just want to rehearse some of the points from that sermon just to remind us as Paul's confronting us with the deceitfulness of fallen humanity, let's be reminded how we can avoid being duped easily. First, identify a reasonable motive. If somebody's trying to sell you a one-ounce gold coin for $100, you can pretty much tell it's, it's a phony or there's a rat in the woodpile. There's something that's, that's just not checking out. Why would anybody sell an $1,800 coin for $100? Okay, too good to be true. There wouldn't be a reasonable motive for somebody to do that uh, unless it's your uncle or something like, you know. But um, identify a reasonable motive. If there isn't one for what the other person is offering, be careful. Secondly, beware of ulterior motives. Evaluate the position of the other person that you're dealing with. What incentives might they have? What interests might they have? What agendas might they have? Who in their life could be influencing them? And so if you think institutionally, right? Institutionally, who's writing the checks? And who has the ability to manipulate different institutions into saying things that the the person with the money wants them to say? So beware of ulterior motives. Thirdly, take your time. Take your time. Pray, seek wise counsel. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. Look at both sides. A hasty decision is usually a bad decision. Don't be hasty. Think about it and take time to research and pray about it. Fourthly, get it in writing. This world is filled with tongues who practice deceit. So somebody says something to you, you know, you're going to buy a car and they say XYZ, you know, the, the salesman says something. Well, get it in writing. Make sure that you have a receipt. Make sure you have some kind of written confirmation that what they said is true and that it's going to be honored. Fifthly, evaluate the character and reputation of a person. When we buy a product, we might look at the reviews. We might look at the reviews of other people that bought the product. How did they evaluate the experience and the quality of that particular product? Uh, We might get reviews on a restaurant, the service, the quality of the food. So, as I said, the world is filled with these deceitful tongues Make sure that you evaluate the character and reputation of the person that you're engaging with in whatever way. Sixthly, identify flatterers. The, the kisses of an enemy versus the wounds of a friend. If there's someone who only speaks smooth words and never offends anybody, Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver, I'm dating myself here, but... If they just never offend anyone, they always tell everybody what they want to hear, uh, that's a bad sign. Somebody who's willing to tell you something that they know you're probably not going to want to hear, but they lovingly tell you anyway, that's a good sign. So identify flatterers. Seventhly, gauge the response to scrutiny. If you apply these principles and the person that you're dealing with is not willing to patiently earn your trust, that's a red flag. So honest people generally don't have a problem with a background check or don't have a problem 
with these kinds of things, so to speak. That's just sort of a, an example, an illustration. But they don't have problem, a problem earning trust and, and proving themselves. And eighthly, cling to Scripture. Cling to Scripture. Uh, if there are explicit biblical principles that address your situation, and especially when it deals with you know, deceitful heretics and false teachers, remember that this is Satan's oldest trick. Whether it's Genesis 3, you will not surely die. Whether it's 1 Kings 13, verse 18, where the, the man of God is told by the prophet to disobey God's command because an angel appeared and told him to do thus and such. Uh, and, and the man of God foolishly obeyed what the angel had supposedly told this, this old prophet and God brought judgment. So cling to God's revealed Word. Cling to the Scriptures as your flashlight, as the lamp for your feet, the light for your path, your way of identifying falsehood, particularly with doctrine and practice. So deceptive words, but obviously it's not just in the world that we're going to encounter these things. It's not only outside the church or even outside our own families or even outside our own selves that we're going to encounter deceptive words. In Corinth, as we looked at uh, last time, remember in Corinth, there were people wronging and cheating their brethren. And 1 Corinthians 6, 8 and 9, Paul confronts them for wronging and cheating and and defrauding each other. And, And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And among the unrighteous, he includes extortioners. So people that are deceptive, people that are taking advantage of other people, people that are unjust, defrauding. If that's a characteristic of your life and you're not repenting and you're not making it right like Zacchaeus and paying people back for whatever you've defrauded, if if you're not doing that, then you don't have a credible profession of faith. And so deceit, deceitful words can happen in the church And frequently, Paul is addressing false teaching. Ephesians 4, uh, the the trickery, the craftiness of false teachers. Uh, Romans 16, verse 18 and following. It's a constant theme of how these tricksters are coming into the church and deceiving people. So, it can be a problem in the church. And let's face it, when it comes to membership vows, this as well is an area where people can say something when they join the church, but whether they meant it or not at the time, they deal deceitfully with the Lord, treacherously with the vows that they've made. And so they don't fulfill those vows. Psalm 15 says those who come into the presence of God in His holy hill, in other words, those who commune at the Lord's table, if we can contextualize it in new covenant language, Those who have a credible profession of faith, who come before the Lord's table with a good conscience, what does it say? It says this person swears to his own hurt and does not change. So to the extent that we've taken marriage vows or we've taken church vows, and we're not fulfilling those things diligently and conscientiously as the Lord enables us, if, if we're just abandoning and ignoring those vows, those commitments then we're dealing deceitfully with the Lord. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
And if we're not diligently striving to obey these things and we're just ignoring them, that is not what we're doing. We're not letting our yes be yes. We're yes and no. We're a self-contradiction. We're dealing deceitfully with the Lord and with His church. Another way that deceit can come into the life even of a Christian is where we reserve the right to lie as a refuge, as, as, a, as a last resort that, well, I'm going to tell the truth, but if I really get into a pickle, I'm going to lie. And if we say that, what we're really saying is that we're planning, we're intending to lie under certain circumstances. But if you would lie under any circumstances, if you're planning to lie, if there are circumstances where you're anticipating, well, I might have to lie, let's hope I don't. Even the, the intent to lie is as if you have lied. I mean, if you lust after a woman in your heart, men, and you would, you would do certain things with her if you had the opportunity, but providentially, circumstantially, you're prevented. Jesus says that's the same as adultery. If you had the intent to sin, then that's really who you are. You actually are an adulterer. If you have the intent to lie, you're a liar. And we need to, we need to recognize no lie is of the truth, as John says. And we ought not to be seeking to take a refuge in lies. This is something that Isaiah the prophet addresses. Isaiah 28, verse 14 Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So, if you're saying, well, as a matter of last resort, I'm going to protect myself by lying. And if you intend to do that, chances are it's going to happen, right? It's eventually going to happen. But let's say you're just, you're just taking refuge in the possibility of lying if you have to, to save your skin. The Lord says, therefore, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And he, he goes on, verse 18, Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. In other words, what it's saying is if you think you're going to take refuge in lies, it's eventually going to circle back around and be just as bad, if not worse. God will not allow us to make a covenant with death, or to take refuge in lies. So we need to intend to tell the truth. We need to prepare ourselves to tell the truth. And we need to follow through on that intention to speak the truth. Especially, I mean, we speak the truth to everybody. Sometimes we can say, no, I'm not going to answer that. I mean, that's a legitimate answer in some cases. But especially with fellow believers, Especially with fellow believers, Ephesians 4.17, Paul urges the Ephesians to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Then he goes on, verse 25, applying that, saying, therefore putting away lying. What does that tell you? That 
some of the Ephesian Christians were struggling with being honest. They were deceitful. They were lying. It was a problem. And he's telling these Christians, put away lying. Identify it. Repent of it. Seek forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ. No deceit was in His mouth. He's your perfect sacrifice. Cling to that forgiveness and put it away. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So especially in the life of the church, when, when parts of the body, physically, in our physical bodies, when parts of the body can't communicate with each other accurately and efficiently, all kinds of things fall apart in terms of the functionality of our human bodies. Well, the same is true in the church. If we can't trust even our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, elders can't trust the members, members can't trust the elders. We see this to an extent. I, think, I, think, I don't think it's inappropriate for me to say, in our denomination of late, with a lot of the conflicts that have taken place, a lot of the discipline cases that have gone up to synod, there are real trust issues in many respects within our denomination, and it has not been very functional, to say the least. So uh, we need to beware of the danger of deceptive words, even in the church, even in our own hearts and lives. And as I said, when we encounter it, we need to look to Christ. He swore to His own hurt and didn't change. And one of the things that He swore to do as our mediator is to sanctify us. So in His perfect faithfulness and truthfulness as the yea, the amen, the faithful and true witness, we find not only forgiveness and justification, but we find in Christ's perfect truthfulness and faithfulness the ground and basis of our sanctification. He is the Lord who sanctifies us. He enables us to walk in the truth. And He can take a liar and make a truth teller. He, he can take those who take refuge in lies and cause them to be those who love and practice and speak the truth in love. So we need to look to Christ. Also, venomous words. Venomous words. We've seen filthy words, deceptive words, venomous words. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is, once again, a quotation from the Psalms, this time Psalm 140, verse 3. Psalm 140, verse 3. I believe we sang this this morning. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Here you can see something of the devilish, demonic element of sinful speech being compared to a serpent. Venomous words. There's something of deceit here as well that the poison of asps is under their lips. There seems to be some concealment here. And so it's speaking of sharp, violent, destructive words and that may be a direct attack. That may be the serpent just aggressively striking or it could be a more subtle, strategic, verbal attack. So it could be reviling uh, no reviler shall enter the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. It could be reviling. It could be whisperers, backbiters, Romans 1. It could be a, a variety of things. Proverbs 12, verse 18. Isn't it amazing how much the Bible says about this topic? Uh, God, God knows we need to hear it. Proverbs 12, 
verse 18. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Now, the tongue of the wise can sometimes be cutting, but more in the sense of a scalpel. Here we're dealing with the piercings of a sword, venomous words. But as I said, even with these venomous words, as sharp and violent and destructive as they are, there can be a subtle strategic element in these verbal attacks as well. After all, the venom, the poison is under the lips. Listen to the Psalms as as they bring out this, this dangerous pattern of speech. Psalm 28, verse 3. The workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. The poison is under the lips. It's hidden. It's concealed. It's, and then at a strategic moment, they strike. Whether it's directly at the person or behind their back, slandering, defaming, things like this. There, there's a hypocrisy. Speaking peace, but evil is in the heart. Psalm 55, verse 21 The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Notice the words were softer than oil, but the words were also drawn swords. So you see the danger here. Psalm 62, verse 4. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. So so this is the strategic subtlety of these venomous words, which is often part of the equation. And this is serious. I mentioned Psalm 15. Who qualifies to come before the Lord at His holy hill? Who ought to be coming to the Lord's table and communing with the Lord's people? That's the question of Psalm 15. And Psalm 15 has so much to say about this topic. Verse 3, He who does not backbite with his tongue It goes on later, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So so whether he's backbiting, whispering, reproaching, you you can see that he takes, that this is a sin that God takes very seriously. Sowing discord among the brethren is one of the six things, yea, seven, that the Lord hates, that is an abomination in his sight. So, as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 6, revilers are disqualified for heaven. So, this is a serious sin. We need to take it very seriously. If we take it seriously, we repent. We seek by God's grace to muzzle ourselves, to get help, to get accountability, to prayerfully make progress in the Christian life. Then, then the Bible's not saying that we're headed for hell. But it's saying if we take it lightly, we don't take it seriously, we just kind of uh, ignore this, I've got other things to think about, I'm justified in reviling or backbiting or slandering, speaking uh, negatively about people behind their back and, and stirring up strife and discord. If we don't take that seriously, then we're in big trouble, according to the Bible. The, the easiest way for us to make progress in this battle because it is a battle. We know the world is filled with gossip and slander and evil speaking. That is the norm. That is the default. That's how the workplace operates. That's how college campuses operate. That's how, that's just sin. That's the flesh. That's how denominations operate. That's how Christians operate half the time. So we need to recognize this is a big deal. Let's 
take stock of this and repent. And the way to do that is a zero-tolerance policy. Where you and I identify things, eh, shouldn't have said that, eh, should have said that differently. Where we identify these areas, we need to then implement a zero-tolerance policy. So just listen to Titus 3.2. He says, remind them to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That is convicting and challenging in terms of the comprehensiveness of it. But better safe than sorry, right? Let's stick with that. Speak evil of no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, we don't have an entire sermon's worth of time to unpack that. Obviously, we have a duty to call it like we see it, to be honest. And there are times when we need to speak and address things and say negative things. But speaking evil where we're just tearing people down, criticizing them either to their face or behind their back, things that are not charitable or things that are not really, I mean, they're just exaggerations. We're not really saying it in in the most careful way. And it's not necessary and it's not edifying. And again, come up with your own filter, something along those lines, but where, where it's evil we ought not to be saying it. We ought not to be just constantly criticizing and tearing people down. That is a problem. So zero tolerance policy. Think before we speak. And this is yet another reminder of our need for Christ. Think of the cross. Think of the cross. Uh, We've looked at this passage already today, but uh, let's look at it again. First Peter 2, verse 21. First Peter 2, verse 21 speaks of Christ leaving us an example to follow in His steps. Verse 22, He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. But verse 23, remember, this is our Savior. This is the, our Beloved. This is our example, right? Why are you a Christian? Because you love Jesus. He's the ultimate. You admire Him more than anyone. You worship Him. You want to be like Him. You want to be with Him for eternity, perfectly conformed to Him. You're excited about Him. I mean, I shouldn't, I mean, I don't need to tell you that, but, but think about what this is saying about Jesus, who when He was reviled, did not revile in return. So when he was treated venomously and viciously, he muzzled his mouth. He did not respond in kind. He didn't respond in like manner. He didn't respond with reviling. He did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now that's an important statement because it's not saying that people mistreating you that that's okay it's not okay it's unjust god hates it he hates it with a passion although he has no parts or passions but you know what i mean he he with with every aspect of his being he hates that you may be mistreated and he's going to deal with that and he has his own ways of dealing with that that are far beyond anything that your sticks and stones that you throw at that person in retaliation are ever going to accomplish 
And he hates that retaliation as well. So the best thing you can do is just to leave room for the judgment of God. That's what Jesus did when he suffered, when he was mistreated, when he was threatened and reviled against. He didn't respond in that way. He committed himself to God. And God, of course, he is God, but he committed himself as our God-man mediator to the divine judgment that eventually overtook his enemies. So recognize, that's Jesus. That's the author and finisher of our faith. That's how we need to respond and not respond with venomous words, lashing out with threats and with reviling against people toward them or behind their back. Venomous words. Also, profane and bitter words. Profane and bitter words. I think what we're going to do is take these next Lord's Day morning and and think about, because there's so much here, a mouth that is full of cursing and bitterness. I can think of a lot of applications for myself. I'm assuming that may be true for you. And so we're going to leave that. But in closing, let's rehearse the application from the beginning. No more autopilot. We have to commit ourselves. As we look at the temptation to use deceptive words, to mischaracterize people, to exaggerate certain things, to to use venomous words, to tear people down, to speak in a retaliating way, vindictive, angry way, disrespectful way, dishonoring way, when we have the temptation to use filthy words that flow out of the filthiness of our sin in our hearts. When we're tempted, my friends, we need to stop and think. We need to put a muzzle. We need, if, if it means counting to ten when you're in a situation, I mean, this sounds trite, but I've used it myself with some success, when you're in a situation where you feel tempted and you're not even sure what you should say and the temptation is that you just go with what you've got but you know what you've got is not Christ-like and God-honoring. In those situations, just hold your peace. Count to 10. Count to 20. Whatever it takes, think before you speak. Think. If you're asked a question, you're tempted to lie. Think before you speak. Think about whether you should answer that question, how you should answer that question. If somebody is using provoking words and seeking to provoke you to wrath, as sadly often happens, think before you have the knee-jerk response of reviling or uh, with the tone of voice, the bitterness and all of these things. No more autopilot. The tongue is, is the rudder that the pilot uses to guide the vessel. No more autopilot. Tame the tongue. Harness the tongue. Constantly have before yourself Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to You, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Think about the fact that God is present whenever and wherever you are listening to every word that you speak. I'm preaching this to myself. And I think it applies to us Those of us that are in positions of authority, all the more. Whether it be office in the church, whether it be husbands, fathers, mothers, authority in the home, authority in the workplace, but especially in the family and in the church. Recognize Luke 10.16. Jesus says, speaking to His apostles, probably a unique aspect here, but I I think it applies He who hears you, hears me. 
He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now, for that verse to have significance, what the apostles are saying should be what Jesus commissioned them to say, right? They are the mouthpieces of Jesus Christ, who is the mouthpiece of God. And so what he's saying here is that as they proclaim the word of Christ, people are going to hear the voice of Christ in it. And that's true. But it's also true that when we bear authority, God-given authority in the family, especially in the church, especially when we bear that God-given authority and we're adorned with that office or that role of authority by God, then those that we're overseeing, those under us in the Lord, are going to look at everything we do in that light. They're going to look at the way we live, the way we speak, the way we act, and they're going to associate that with Christ. They're going to hear what you say, parents, your, your children are going to hear what you say, and they're going to associate that with Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is that what should be the case is that when that happens, what you're saying is godly. What you're saying is what Jesus is saying. And therefore, it's going to be a powerful, dynamic influence that you have on those people. An example, follow me as I follow Christ. Your words are a tree of life. They produce health and well-being and blessing. As you set an example, as a mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus Christ, those who hear you in your role of authority will hear Christ. But either way, they're going to associate it with Christ. And that is a tremendous burden and a tremendous source of accountability that ought to give us great hesitation and ought to make us guard our mouths all the more. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for Your Word that You have not given us the kisses of an enemy, but the wounds of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We thank You for speaking the truth to us in love. Indeed, for that love by which You sent Your Son into this world to save us from our sins and to liberate us, to loose our tongue that we may speak of Your righteousness all the day long. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.